I had visions, I was in them, I was looking into the mirror. See a little bit clearer, the rottenness and evil in me. Fingertips and memories, I can't believe the curves of your body. When I feel a bit naughty, I run it up the plague pool and see who salutes, but no one ever does. I'm not sick, but I'm not well. And I'm so high, cause I'm in hell. Put me in the hospital, I swear to God, God to commit me. I said I was crazy. folks so is there a weird noise Hi, folks so, in the background of these or is that is just on youtube because so people are complaining these, or is that is just on youtube echo because people are complaining it's doubling echo it's not using the mic all right i gotta try to pick this thing up it's not using the mic this thing up it's not using the mic get rid of not using the mic that does that help? Is that better, or am I now deaf? What do you got? All right, I turned off a thing. Is that better or worse? That did it? Okay. All right, good. Echo is fuck. I thought it was gone. It's gone? Okay. Ah. Uh. All right, so I, we haven't done on these streams for a while. We haven't done uh, a book, and I figure since I'm going to do, try to stick to one a week, it'd be good to focus it around a book that people can read along with if they'd like to, and we can talk about. Uh, and it hit me that I have this book. I bought it a while ago, but I haven't started it yet. And uh, in the chat, while I was talking last week about, you know, uh, ideas about social structures and how they're generated. Somebody pointed out that the new David Graeber RIP and a David Wengrow book, The Dawn of Humanity, is sort of like the antithesis of what I'm talking about because, you know, 
they're anarchists and they don't think that structures uh, at necessarily uh, uh, determine uh, the, the way that societies are organized. Uh, so I figure, hey, let's have a little conversation. Let's have a conversation with Graber and Wengro, who, for uh, the sake of brevity, I'm going to call Grabegro, instead of having to say both names, which is annoying. So for next week, I'm going to read the first two chapters of The Dawn of Everything, and we'll talk about them. I already read the first chapter. Uh, it's basically them being like, uh, yeah, you know all that other shit that everyone else has been saying about how uh, societies form? Uh, they're full of shit. They're dumb. Uh, we're going to start. We're going to blow your mind. We're going to give you an alternative story as to how civilization began. And in that first chapter, they make some very cogent points, namely that most of our uh, stories about where social structures come from are just that. They're totally unmoored to any kind of evidentiary or, or uh, empirical model. It's And that's honestly, that's not a problem with me, but it is interesting that it. so many of the people who have now embraced empiricism and rationality and evidence-based scientific enlightenment as basically the only uh, lens to see the world through are really content to allow the foundation for their understanding of the society they live in to rest on a bunch of uh, fairy tales, a bunch of just-so stories. And so Grave Grow here look like they're going to be trying to uh, propose an alternative story, which might have a little more evidence in it since, you know, these guys are actually uh, anthropologists and archaeologists as opposed to the sort of freelance intellectuals who otherwise people the the social science, the popular social sciences. Uh, but it's still at the end of the day going to be them telling a tale. And we'll see. We'll see what seems right. We'll see what uh, where they, what points are being made and which ones are good. So we'll see. It's first two chapters for next week. I'm, I'm interested in c going through this stuff. Because uh, I got to figure there's going to be a lot of like very interesting, useful stuff here. But at the same time, I am I come in with a lot of skepticism to any argument that says that uh, the structures of the economic order do not determine most of our uh, social values. <clears throat> they make a very good point, though, in the first chapter about uh, how we're very quick when uh, trying to imagine pre-historical -civiliza pre civilization uh, to imagine that they lacked elements of life that we have uh, basically because you couldn't price it. Like the things, like the values that we have now, the things that make us happy we live in civilization uh, are uh, valued because we literally have a price for them. That's how we know they have worth. And so, the assumption is in a civilization, civilizations that existed before that, 
it, the emergence of that market and that and that rigid price structure on on things that that the val- that the experiences that those things represented uh, didn't exist. And I think that pointing that out is very useful and undermines, I think, a lot of the triumphant Steven Pinker uh, ideas about uh, civilization in general. But we'll get to that next week. And I'll say, like, you know, the Marxist tradition doesn't really have any kind of empirical grounding either because at the end of the day, it's kind of hard to have a lot uh, of empirical insights because the farther back you go, the less uh, meat is left to sift through, the more fragments, the more fragmentary things are. So anyway, next week we'll be talking about that. Yes, sift through your meat. Somebody says, do we need a secular Anabaptism? Well, I mean, I think one of the points I was trying to make last week is that is that the socialist movement is secular Anabaptism. I mean, because I really don't think that you can understand modern Western society, civilization, the secular West that we have with its enlightenment principles as uh, anything other than a evolution of uh, the Protestant world and the Protestant worldview that was emer- that emerged in the uh, modern era. And just as uh, Protestantism overthrew Catholicism uh, and organized itself along different levels of critique, basically, and different challenges to uh, social structure from uh, magisterial Lutheranism to uh, reformed Calvinism, to uh, the quietist sects like the Mennonites, to radical uh, uh, power-challenging sects like the Anabaptists. Uh, It's all a continuum of a challenge to the Catholic social order. And then the uh, modernity, as we know it, is a similar challenge to the religious social order uh, that Protestantism was trying to perfect. Uh, and it was the Protestantism's success in breaking up the social basis for religious belief that led inevitably to the Enlightenment. Because there was nowhere else to turn uh, to understand the world other than to oneself. And the accumulation of techno- technologies, the, te- the accumulation of uh, social orders premised on technology increased our capacity to understand at a mechanical level how the world around us worked, which did a lot to cut the ties that had bound previous generations to religious faith. Like the, 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 the early Protestants, their minds were aflame with critique and, and with uh, challenge to the conventional order around them, but they were deeply constrained by their understanding of the world, which was relatively uh, 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 unschematic, certainly uh, nothing in it to truly undermine 
uh, the socially generated idea that the God created the universe and God created Earth, and so and that the, like the Bible is the source of understanding of the world we live in. And so they set about studying the Bible with ferocious intensity. Uh, but eventually there became more books that you could study, like uh, Origin of the Species, for example. And applying that searching, alienated, urbanized, guilt and uh, resist resentment-filled mind, that, uh, that modern subjectivity to a wider array of uh, of scientific reports on the nature of reality allows for the creation, finally, of an alternative, a really stable uh, alternative to the religious worldview. That's not to say that there weren't unbelievers all through human history and that medieval and early modern uh, Europe didn't have plenty of people who didn't really believe in God. Of course they did. But it's a question of reproducing those beliefs socially at the social scale. And there just wasn't a constituency or a vocabulary to perpetuate that. Just as there wasn't a capacity or, or constituency or vocabulary to challenge Catholicism effectively until the invention of the printing press. The 12th century England had, in 12th century already, England had the Lollards. Very funny name. Uh, for a religious dissenting group. They used to get together at Lollard Palooza, and they were critiquing Catholicism along many of the same axes that uh, the Protestants ended up doing, but absent uh, mass literacy, absent mass communication capacity, they became a small uh, uh set off community that eventually was persecuted into uh, oblivion and, or dissipated uh, uh, secretly into an underground. Jan Hus got where he got, which is killed, but with his followers in uh, Bohemia waging a 20-year war against the Holy Roman Empire and eventually to uh, gain a religious uh, settlement that allowed them to set up their own separate church with their own uh, communion rituals, the Ultraquist Church. Uh, and he was able to do so in the absence of a printing press. But what he had there was a, a linguistic and ethnic conflict that the uh, religious challenge was able to map uh, on top of. Because uh, in Bohemia at that time, the religious ecclesiastical authorities were largely German speakers. And the laity, by and large, were Czech speakers. And that had caused, as you could imagine, uh, social tensions and, and resentment. And Hus, Hus's challenge to Catholicism was able to uh, map on top of it. And that gave it the energy to become a sustained movement that was able to fight uh, the Holy Roman Empire to something like a draw. They, they, they fought all that... They fought for 20 years for the right to get bread and water, or bread and wine at the communion. That was basically it. They were sick of only getting, uh, fuck, I can't remember, if it's the bread or the wine. They were only getting one, and they were like, fuck you, we want both. And after 20 years and burning John Huss alive, they said, fine. 
So anyway, this is all to say that you need the uh, social structures and technology uh, to really challenge uh, conventional structures, which means, of course, that it's happening from within. You know, uh, the, it happens from within a hegemony. You get this counter-hegemony built. Uh, and eventually, it can take over. And Protestantism took over for Catholicism, largely because the uh, economic engine strapped to Protestantism was more dynamic than Catholicism's political economy. Uh, and then we get the perfected Protestant polity here in the United States, where all of the uh, inherent contradictions that come from trying to abolish civic religious faith and ritualize reaffirmation of faith, replace it with this totally individualized religious commitment, and then expect people to still live together as Christian brothers, uh, are able to be resolved through domination, subjugation, uh, and the creation of otherized uh, laborers and uh, the expropriation of others' land. And then Catholics ended up having to come too from their undynamic, uh, rapidly uh, devolving pe uh, peasant economies in, in Southern and Central Europe. And they were a undigested uh, challenge to American Protestantism for a hundred years, but they were eventually scattered throughout the suburbs and suborned into a broader American Protestantism that by that point, of course, had been ateliated into a even more secularized world where everybody is at the same time Protestant and atheist. So like the uh, people who followed the Puritans in peopling uh, the intellectual spheres of our cities and the merchant classes. They lost religious faith, the Protestantism, uh, in a formal sense. They embraced an atheistic understanding of the universe. But the moral system of Protestantism uh, remained. Uh, and similarly, the, uh, the Protestants who held on to the religious faith and spread across the continent uh, did so while embracing capitalism and the logic of markets and the logic of uh, secular society uh, completely. And then Catholicism is just uh, washed back into it, which is why sometimes people say when they hear me talk about this stuff, that they think that I am standing for Catholicism against Protestantism, and I'm saying it's better or that we should all convert to it. That's silly. You can't go back. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Catholicism is, in my mind, what defined it and what Protestantism challenged was uh, a social ritual of a religious affirmation that is incompatible in the long term with capitalism. And so one of them had to go, and it was ritual reaffirmation of religious uh, belief. Not everywhere, not evenly, 
but broadly and certainly in the United States. And so you, by saying, you, you don't get anywhere by saying I'm Catholic. You're still totally socially isolated and atomized. Okay, I'm going to go do the Bennett adoption. Okay, good luck in your cult compound. How do those turn out? The social order has to be challenged from, from, the, from the point of its uh, economic engine. If you're going to have the building of any uh, future religious faith that can offer the, the succor that people imagine medieval Catholicism did. Yes, like Catholicism was the, was the uh, religious social logic of feudalism. And feudalism is is gone now. We talk about techno feudalism, but the whole point the whole point of techno and the feudalism is that it has replaced all of the social bonds and uh, points of social coercion and consent with technological ones. They know there no longer needs to be any concerns that people uh, believe in the value of anything that uh, any system benefits them. They only have to know that they will be punished if they disobey. And feudalism could not offer that level of coercion. There was not enough power and control. There was not enough surveillance. There wasn't enough of a disparity in uh, weaponry between commoners and the aristocracy. People cooperated within feudalism because at a fundamental point, for the most part, most of the time, they believed, they consented, to the system they were in. And all of our social orders have been uh, defined by that relationship. And that exists at every level, even at the hyper-exploited point, the worst miseries of, of, uh, of a system like feudalism or a slave economy, the people who are most exploited are still... Uh, are still participating instead of revolting. But with them, at the lowest point, is exactly where, uh, in a slave economy, for example, uh, surveillance and technology and disparity of power is greatest, where, where coercion is most uh, in, uh, imposed. But it's a scale. Everybody is coerced and consents to some degree, depending on where they are the social hierarchy. And that consent part, that's free. That is generated by the experience of social life. It does not have to be formally maintained by power structures. If you lose that, absent a change in technology, you lose the ability to govern. You lose uh, legitimacy and you are overthrown. Or your order collapses. If, if no, uh, no coherent opposition to it can assert power. What is happening in our system here, at the end point of capitalism's uh, terminal crisis, once again, terminal could go on for a very long time. It doesn't mean there's any collapse happening anytime soon. I just mean that we've finally achieved a global market. That's the end point of capitalism's logic of expansion. It doesn't have anywhere else to go. There's fantasies of going to the moon and Mars and stuff, but that is just, that is the ideology speaking. That's the stuff that keeps us cons uh, consenting. That's why Tesla is so important as a, as a node of prop 
of uh, of state uh, control because and why it can't go under right now because Tesla represents a technological capitalist salvation, an intervention that will prevent the worst that we all suspect is coming. Now, absent intervention or a collapse that undermines the system's ability to maintain itself, uh, the trajectory we are on is one in which all that uh, belief, that social consent that used to exist has been drained from us and replaced with an awareness of our precarity and uh, vulnerability to a regime of surveillance and control. And this will create like a new subjectivity that we can't even really understand or, or project outward because we're not living under it. Right now, though, we're living sort of at the, uh, at the final frontier of, of an exhausted Protestant uh, secularism, which took over Protestantism first and, and then uh, secular Western values as it got drained of its supernatural connotations, uh, became the cultural logic of capitalism and have been ever since capitalism uh, fully dominated in the mid-1920s, 19th century. And that is one in which the society, so you don't look to your social uh, order, you don't look to rituals within your social life for reaffirmation of your beliefs. They are internal. They are held within oneself the uh, social order is seen as a desacralized market where if God's will is to be uh, uh, divined, it is not through people walking in religious procession on a feast day or getting communion or uh, having a carnival or, or, uh, or uh, pa watching passion plays in the city courtyard. It's who prospers and who suffers in this marketplace. And I got to say, nobody is seeking this. Like Protestantism did not seek this desacralized social space. Protestants were trying to adapt to a new social reality as capitalism came into existence. They were coping. I don't think there's a greater example of cope in human history than the Puritans coming to New England to try to finally create a community of real believers who would all be trust in each other's faith and be able to live together as Christians by expropriating the, the godless natives. But they were hooked into a, a burgeoning world system that was going to pull them uh, into competing social classes based on ownership of capital. 
And all those social bonds were going to break, no matter what anybody's belief was. And then the ones who stayed home, the Puritans who stayed home, they helped overthrow and cut the king's, off, king's head off. And in another attempt to recreate the social order, which failed. Because it had to fail. Because it was always cope. Everyone is moving towards what they think is their best interest and the best interest of uh, their faith the, uh, and, and if, if even the human race. They can imagine that or if they imagine themselves as parts of uh, ambassadors of a, of a gospel that will eventually uh, overtake the world. But the tools they have to try to do that are the tools that the uh, political economy leaves for them. And that means that they can only destroy their, the basis of their own beliefs with every action. Uh, just as the, uh, the dynasties of Europe destroyed their own power, their own uh, real power, like their own actual control over uh, people and, and, and geographic entities by... Uh, endorsing and uh, facilitating capitalism. But they had no choice because they were in a competition with other dynasties. And they'd convinced themselves that their best interest is the best interest of their people, Europe, world, whatever. Everybody within every social hierarchy is moving towards their own uh, self-interest, which they have identified with the best interest of humanity. But in a context of uh, capitalism, can only end up alienating from themselves and from uh, the people who come after them uh, all that they had held sacred and profaning everything that they were seeking to protect and building this other thing, this, this alienated monstrosity. Because the human race is always uh, in the process of becoming, right? Of becoming self-aware, of, of, of recognizing uh, its, its unity and destiny. But it's doing that uh, through uh, social structures that are generated inherently by uh, contradiction-ridden, economic systems of exploitation that pull us away, that, that make the material world without our will, with, make basically uh, the, the material, we make the material world into the opposite of what we want. The actual material world becomes the opposite of our intended uh, efforts.
And that is why we are in the process of, of, of building a uh, self-aware algorithm of profit exploitation that has no need for human inputs, no need for human will at any point, only human subjugation. Not the, uh, not a human uh, desire for anything other than continued existence. All other goals, desires, uh, aspirations squeezed out by the, the process by which profit destroys, literally, the uh, biosphere and ecosystem that, uh, that it's preying on, basically. And that creates conditions of decline. And in those conditions, humans are going to try to change something to stop it from happening. But anything that they could do to actually change it goes against the, the deeper prime directives that are no longer accessible by human action, at least within the system. And so people despair, fall away, uh, or submit themselves to the machine. And eventually, uh, the only human uh, inter involvement necessary is to uh, fill a gap in a, trend, in a circuit. And if, if you refuse, you prove yourself to be a, a dead spark plug, you get thumped out and they bring in another one. Because there will always be another one. Now that sounds, of course, super doom-pilled, black-pilled. Uh, and it's reflect it uh, is basically what I was saying the other week about how uh, that uh, that encircling power that choked off the Anabaptists of Munster, uh, that choked off a couple of uh, Buddhist utopian projects in medieval Japan, uh, and that choked off the Soviet Union, uh, is now all consuming and all encompassing. Uh, and that the real has been sort of removed. Uh, that's not that's not true. When I when I talk about this, I'm talking from within. The assumption being at every point that the people I'm describing, uh, the people in the position that we are now, in a, in a inside the system in the future, are are still there are still on one side of uh, the border as these archipelagos of power shrink. There are still people on the other side of the line. There are still real humans uh, living in the abandoned parts of the world uh, and amongst the, the abandoned detritus of the technological civilization. And they all have a will, and they all have a desire to uh, continue on, and they will have every incentive in the world to band together. How effective they can be, who knows? But And, and I, I don't necessarily think that they would ever overthrow the techno-feudal cantons, uh, but they wouldn't really need to. They could very well be able to build alternative structures in the wreckage 
which would, I think, in the long term, sustain themselves much more than the uh, death-driving techno-suicide booth on the other side of the line. Within the wire. Because the human, as human agency just is bled out of existence and technology completely overrides it, there is no desire, there's no human will to continue. Uh, and eventually, yeah, you would just have machines that were still plugged in doing their own thing. Uh, maybe a few, like, complete psycho field people who've decided that they can actually become God. Uh, which, if you're close enough to money in capitalism, is the alternative to the despair of uh, secular nihilism, which consumes everybody else within it. If you really can sit close to enough money, even though it's not possible any more than us becoming uh, space colonists in the near future is, uh, you can believe it. And that's all that matters. There will be a cadre of, uh, of scientists who know more than you who will have a self-interest in bullshitting you about how you can live forever. So that'll be it. Everybody, you'll either you, everybody will either have killed themselves in despair or just not reproduced, uh, and then there will be a few tanks with guys floating in it, hoping that they can uh, eventually become uh, robot living gods. Until like a fucking a Roomba kicks out one of the plugs and they just flatline. But on the other side of the wire, you've got the people who were left behind by civilization. And who have, I'm going to tell you, a lot, they're going to have a lot of uh, the detritus of civilization to sift through, to, to build out of. And they're going to have the experience of civilization chewing them up and spitting them out to start from. And if there's going to be a challenge to capitalism, I think that's where it truly emerges. And I don't think it overthrows capitalism. I don't think the center is overthrown. And I think a lot of people are so uh, wedded to being inside the tent of civilization, are so scared of the moral and uh, physical implications of being outside of the, the uh, veal crate of Western technological society that they assume uh, any future that involves uh, picking through uh, the, by definition, lawless uh, wastelands of capitalism is, by definition, a, the worst case scenario, is the annihilation of humanity. Uh, I think it could very well be the uh, genesis of the next real stage of human social evolution. And that what we're right in the middle of now is going to be remembered like any other failed empire from deep history. We're going to be like the fucking Assyrians.
think they're going to look back and they're going to chart all the all the uh, all of the empires that rose and fall through the eras of uh, of uh, human alienation, uh, 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 where the social order was predicated on competition between humans, uh, not something that was inherent to humans, not something that was never uh, that was always doomed to repeat itself, but something that over time predominated during a given period, given this period, given, the, given these climactic and geographic uh, and contingent conditions. This is what we got from slave societies to feudalism to capitalism, is we got these rising and falling empires attempting to stabilize a polity and having to always expand to compensate for the internal contradictions of a class society and then collapsing when, usually when climate conditions changed. And uh, with that, uh, the uh, internal coherence and ability of the, of the empire to expand uh, was also compromised. That's the history, that's, that's, that's the tale of all of our uh, pre-capitalist empires. And I think You'll see, they'll say, here's the Roman Empire, uh, here, is this, here is the, um, the era of, um, of interregnum and, uh, and challenge in Europe. Uh, and then, post-1945, you had this uh, new global empire that progressed at every, along every axis that it could, uh, and then finally collapse within its own contradictions. And then the humans outside of it, outside of its barbed wire and outside of its uh, market zones, outside of its logic, but with the memory of all those things, built something else. Yes, somebody says the Little Ice Age ended medieval Christendom ended the Catholic hegemony. I think broadly that is correct. That and the printing press did it. Because you had a, uh, a worldwide, but certainly continent-wide paroxysm of, uh, of agricultural instability. Uh, and feudalism is based on agriculture. Uh, coupled with a new ability to express broad discontent across uh, temporally fixed places. And in those new climactic and social conditions, the old ritualized Christian world was no longer sustainable, and a new one had to be built. And in order to prevent everyone in Europe from killing each other, a secular space, a secular social space had to be created. And something had to fill in for uh, a relig religiosity in public action. And that was market compulsion. 
What if it keeps on going, though? It's going to. I'm just saying in its peripheries and in its uh, abandoned zones, other things are going to be happening. And there's going to be challenges from within as well that are going to push it in different directions. And we don't. I don't really know. I, I, I've given up predicting anything because we're in the middle of an inflection point right now. I feel like I gave the wrong impression when I talk about all the inflection points and hinge points in history and how we've missed a lot of them and that we kind of missed the chance to grab hold of industrial civilization and socialize its uh, machinery that capitalism has moved beyond its historically uh, progressive role and is now just a uh, carcinogen on our body politic. But we're still uh, in a fluid moment. All moments are fluid and no uh, end point for any of this is fixed. And And what that means is that whatever challenge will emerge to capitalism within and without uh, its zones of control is going to push us towards one world and away from another. And that in the retrospect, this moment will be a hinge. And there will be contingencies that we can't see right now. So we have to act like every moment is contingent. That is to me how you resolve the question of free will and determinism, the question of historical structures versus uh, uh, happenstance of chance and human decisions, is to say one is the objective uh, schematic of existence, and the other is the subjective experience of existence. And we can only subjectively experience existence as individuals. And so we're obligated to act like every moment is a hinge point. Every moment is contingent. And only in retrospect will we be able to determine which ones were But the way to think about this, I think, that's most illuminating is is that it really is, as James Cameron and others have bluntly put it, a war against the machines. It is against technology. Uh, Ted, uh, Ted Kaczynski was right about that. I think it's kind of tedious to like be an edgelord Kaczynskiite because none of you are serious. Nobody's getting a fucking cabin in Montana. You're all posting. If you're posting, you aren't really Ted-pilled. I'm sorry. He did not post. He posted by writing letters to the fucking editor. I guess you could say that if he lasted long enough, he would have like posted blogs. But I don't know. I think he would have uh, considered that a lesser form of communication and wouldn't have bothered with it. But capitalism is a technology to manage uh, human existence. And it was built by the upper strata of European post-feudal society 
in an effort to maintain their power in the face of rapidly destabilizing conditions, destabilized climactic conditions, coupled with a new mass populace who could articulate ideas and communicate across time and space uh, in an unprecedented fashion. Someone says it happened in agriculture. See, that's what this is about. This is one of the big things that uh, GrabGrow challenges. They say that agriculture did not necessitate the creation of uh, rigid class structures. And that's a bold statement, as Vincent Vega said. And I'm willing to, I'm willing to be convinced, uh, but we'll be... We'll, but I will be reading it. So next week, first two chapters, we're going to start talking about it. He's saying that, no, that he's got, there's going to be a number of uh, evidences of societies that uh, established complicated agriculture without attendant social structures. Uh, and I'm very, very interested to find out what those might be. Uh, We'll see, because to me, it's very difficult to imagine, because as I've said, uh, there is an inherent preference if you are within uh, a group of people who enjoy the surplus of others to continue to live that way instead of having to do stuff that is sucks. Now, I understand that farm labor, the, the misery of farm labor uh, is not fixed that it can be alleviated and reduced uh, if it is unalienated, and certainly if there is cooperation in uh, its production. Uh, how you scale that, though, is the real question. How do you scale agriculture to allow for significant uh, social uh, formation and population growth uh, in a way that does not increase exploitation of uh, agricultural labor, does not require the intensification of agricultural labor. We'll see. We'll see what they have to say. I'm, like I said, I'm willing to be convinced. And then we'll see how that uh, affects the the, uh, the rest of the tottering edifice of my Weltschung. 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 Why do, our elite, why do our elites have to be so boring is the question. And a lot of people have pointed this out, that our elites have nothing uh, really grandiose about themselves. Like A lot of people made fun of that picture of uh, Jeff Bezos looking like Pitbull and thinking, my God, that's uh, such a bummer. Like This guy's got a, more money than God, and he's using it to... Have a, pretend he's at the Clevelander 
which, you know, anybody could do if they have like a fucking iron shirt. And they're like, that, that's what you're doing with the money? That's the whole point of capitalism, is that it is totalizing. All of the uh, pageantry and majesty that separated uh, elites of the past and all of the ritualized uh, uh, architecture, like physical architecture that was uh, built to sustain that sense of difference and distinction and power uh, has been technologized, has been synthesized into our social existence. And now uh, one of the big reasons we all participate in capitalism is because of the fantasy that we can be elite, that we can be amongst them. And so their dreams have to be our dreams. As we've totally abolished a metaphysical separation between our elites and us, like we no longer think they're God's or God's emissaries. We think they're just like us. Their uh, behavioral and uh, cultural presentation is also made banal. But of course, in the real material world, the amount of power that they hold and the uh, physical distance between them and us is, of course, greater than ever. Like, at the end of the day, they might have had a fucking, the, 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 the uh, pharaohs might have built pyramids, but they slept, what, up a few stairs from their subjects? But, but behind some curtains with some guys guarding it? Guys with sticks, which you also have. Physically, you're right there, even though you are metaphysically a god to them. And that does the dis that does the job of putting up of, of putting a razor wire and having uh, landmines and and private islands and helicopter uh, uh, helicopter docking across the world to keep you from the hoi polloi. That is. That, tech, that uh, power is metaphysical. So they don't have to worry about you coming in with a stick. And so they can, stay, they can exert that kind of power within that kind of vulnerable position. Now our wealthy, our power, our elites, they're just some guys. We all think that. So the more uh, uh, prosperity gospel pilled of us might think that they are elect by God, that they're that they're going to heaven because they live there now. But at the end of the day, they're sinners like the rest of us. Everybody uh, recognizes them as as basically the same metaphysical stuff as us, but they are completely inaccessible. They are, cannot be engaged with physically. You can tweet at them. You can't get to them. And that is the process of civilization, is technology being used over time by elites to maintain the distance in space, turn the distance in 
the mind in time into physical uh, fixed power. So, like, there's no reason for Bezos and those guys to do anything, uh, uh, like, superly operatically uh, ritualized and and uh, challenging to our conventional notions because they have nothing to prove. They don't need to reaffirm their separation from us. And the fact that they've all just lived under the same system I, we do means that their imaginations and mental horizons have been impoverished as all of ours have. More so because of their commitment to power and and uh, and asserting it, which leaves them less mental space for anything else. That's why the early 1900s are so interesting, because at that time, you had all these kings and queens of Europe walking around in the same relationship to their subjects that their ancestors did, who had around them the cloak, the divine cloak of a right of kings that was genuinely something people believed. Even if they hated the, the king, it was within a context of understanding kingly prerogatives and kingly power. But by the early 1900s, the late 1800s, as capitalism is doing its most traumatic work in Europe and the United States to the uh, polity, within, the people within, it did, its, it's, it was, it's did most of its worst work, you know, uh, during the colonial periods. But uh, that's somebody else's problem. At that point, though, it was finally coming for uh, the interior areas where cap the capitalist world system is finally uh, revving into full industrial gear. Uh, and in those conditions, uh, given the acceleration of scientific understanding that leads to mass disillusionment with religion and the experience of living in a world where things just get worse and you get smaller. People in Europe and the United States got smaller over the course of the late 1900s. They started growing a lot when they had more access to beef in the early 19th century, or in the early, uh, yeah, 19th century. And then, boom, they started shrinking as soon as they started getting en masse dumped into the dark satanic mills. So life was murdering them. Now, English uh, political economy told them that, well, that was the market, a.k.a. God, telling them uh, what their fate was. That English uh, liberalism is just the next step of Puritanism. It's the further refinement of the contradiction between uh, metaphysical existence and the alienating life uh, under capitalism. And that, but that only really that only really sold to people who were benefiting from it, from people who weren't. They went along out of the fact that they didn't have a choice. But they certainly got disillusioned 
with things like the king's fucking uh, prerogative. And so you have this amazing period when a bunch of kings and queens and prime ministers who are used to just like going to the movies, going to an opera, riding around in an open carriage, just started getting absolutely murked. Of course, here in the U.S., it was uh, William McKinley getting shot in the stomach at a receiving line at the Buffalo Exposition by a guy, Leon Cholgosh, who literally was hiding the gun in a fucking handkerchief. That was all he was doing. No, amazing. But in uh, the king of Italy was murdered. I believe the uh, Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian uh, empress was stabbed to death. Uh, prime ministers and presidents in Spain and uh, France. You had a bunch of pissed off people disenchanted with existing structures of power, secular and religious, uh, and in close proximity to their elites. And they started, they started killing them. Now we're reaching a new stage of core crisis and exploitation after the stabilization of the post-World War II era uh, and a new mass disillusionment. But our elites are nowhere to be found. They're behind bulletproof glass and 15 layers of security guards. And yes, the czar, the czar liberator, Alexander II, got it fucking blown up. That's one thing that uh, we definitely lost, though, is the, tr the tradition of throwing round bombs Perfectly round bombs with wicks, fuses. We should bring back those bombs. Not to throw at anyone, parody, video game, but like shot putting towards a pumpkin or something. They're just fun. But that, that literally, like that's how they would kill people. They would throw little round bocce balls. At, it was like fucking Mario Brothers. Being, being a Gilded Age monarch was like playing a level of Mario trying to just avoid the little bombs. But of course, what did any of it accomplish? What did all of this propaganda of the deed actually accomplish? Pretty much nothing. Because what moves the wheels of history is collective action. Collective action by elites and collection action, collective action up by the, the people that the elites exploit. Now, because of technology and asymmetrical uh, access to technology, the elites, you need a lot fewer of them to act together to exert power. You need a lot more of their exploited to do so, to make up for the gap in uh, technology. And so you need to get people together. Now, blowing up kings and queens and shooting presidents, it's, uh, you could say, funny 
and certainly not anything that you could argue they don't have coming in a moral sense. Uh, but the idea that it's what inspires people to act against capitalism uh, is a romantic fantasy because it imagines that your aesthetic appreciation of the death of a monarch is going to break some spell over you and change the way you act. I would say no. You're going to keep acting the way for the same reasons that most people act most of the time, which is a dimly sensed notion of their own self-interest, which is first and foremost, not only, but first and foremost, a material self-interest. And so while you might cheer on the death of a monarch or be inspired to, uh, to act against power, in the moment that it happens, you can only be repeatedly pushed in the direction of challenge, pushed in the direction of mobilization uh, and activism and uh, the, the, to the work of building counter hegemony by the deeper prod of material investment. And that is your subjective experience as a exploited person. Someone in the exploited class. And then the thing that keeps you on the same road as your compatriots is your shared self-interest. Which is then melded into a self-conscious class interest. Now, when you think what's good for me, me encompasses more people than it used to. Now, Capitalists don't do that. They can always, always are only looking out for their, their, their self-interest because they're not exploited. They have no reason to uh, resist the flow of the social order. They use their access to technology and control and influence to advance their self-interest. But all of those exploiters' self-interest pointed in the same direction is, of course, the maintenance of the social order of domination. But because it is never fused into a single class consciousness, it has contradictions within it that undermine it, like the contradictions currently existing between uh, fixed national regional capital and uh, international capital, which is playing out all over the world uh, in the form of uh, the, the center against right-wing populism. Someone says, the self is the demiurge. That's a bingo. If you want to know where uh, Yaldala Bath or whatever the fuck his name is, is look in the mirror. And so therefore, the strength of the working class opposed cap to capital is that they, by creating a class consciousness, are able to uh, negate all, all those contradictions within this, themselves and act in concert instead of undermining themselves from within as capitalism does. But what happened in our version of reality is that even with all that propaganda of the deed and the emergence of working class movements across uh, the industrial heartland of uh, North America uh, and uh, Europe, the apocalyptic violence of capitalism and crisis that marked the first 30 years, 40 years of the, uh, I'm sorry, the first 
50 years of the 20th century saw the uh, working class movement uh, neutralized. Uh, and it's uh, cultural, economic engine sequestered in a post-feudal backwater in Russia where it was not able to compete. And it was uh, surrounded and starved just as Anabaptist Munster had been. So well, you shouldn't fret. Like if I was, if I was somebody in, uh, I mean, I can't obviously imagine it. But looking back on it, there's no real reason for anybody to spend time fretting about the assassination wave. Uh, but there's also no reason to participate in it. It wasn't going to move the fucking needle. It was an adornment. It was an epiphenomenon to the greater process of uh, capitalist class formation. Okay, so that's that. I hope that made sense. Let's go, Brandon. Just want to end today by saying that I honestly feel like Joe Biden is the uh, best president of my lifetime for the simple fact that he is the first one to really drop the mask. You can say people say Trump, but Trump just traded one fantasy of us living in a deliberative democracy for another uh, us living in a place where you can uh, still win by owning your ideological opponents. You can still win through expression of your resentment. If you piss somebody else off, you've won. That's the dream of Trump. Biden doesn't even have that. Biden is here to tell you every day, and he does it with actions, and more importantly to me, as, a, as an aesthetic appreciator of uh, politics uh, in words that it's over. Biden came out here today after trying to do some more bullshit about the voting rights bill and he goes, I don't know if I can get this done. I don't know if it's going to happen, folks. Shush. Tried everything. Tried nothing and we're out of ideas. People are freaking out about it. But would you rather he bullshit you? Would you rather him give you the Obama con job? And I can say personally that I've had enough of that. And if I'm just, if I'm just evaluating this stuff on aesthetic grounds, because remember, there's no point in getting mad at these people. They are filling spots that need to be filled. They're all hollow. They're just instruments of a uh, algorithm. They might have convinced themselves that they're doing it because they want to and for some greater good, whatever that is. 
But that's just cope. If that's the case, give me somebody who recognizes the exhaustion of it, which is, of course, what makes his contrast with uh, Harris so interesting. Because, yeah, he is the he is the corpse of the Democratic Party machinery, and of course, the Democratic Party as a machine is dead. He is the last machine Democrat. The party is now uh, no longer a. Uh, machine with a mechanism that had some sort of internal uh, identity formation mechanisms that made people fuse their best self-interest with their idea of the party's self-interest. I would say that's what a machine is. It's when you imagine yourself as a Democrat because your goals, not just your meanest material goals and your delusions of grandeur, but also your... uh, ethical considerations, because these people do all live in some sort of ethical world. Very few of them are pure sociopaths. They have convinced themselves they stand for something. That used to be connected to the party itself. And Biden represented the end of that. And the reason that he won the nomination is because the choice was either Bernie, anathema to most people who vote Democrat, or someone who stood for the Democratic Party, and then a bunch of people who only stood for themselves, the person of themselves, and only appealed to people who narcissistically fused their egos to that person. Pete, Kamala, all these people were there, at least the ones who made it in uh, uh, Warren, at least the ones who like made it toward uh, into any kind of discussions of relevance were there to only represent themselves. And in a primary electorate, there's not that many people. Left with that choice, people went with the person who represented the Democratic Party because that's something that they could relate to, if nothing else, than vestigially. Or if they were sick of Trump as a negation of Trump, even if they didn't like the party itself. But he was it. I mean, there's a reason that the person who had that spot is a senile 80-year-old. That's the, that is the uh, Democratic Party in senescence. So Kamala is the post-party, the purely individualized and atomized Democratic Party. So while Joe can tell you this is all over, turn out the lights, uh, Kamala cannot do that. So she says stuff about how we need to listen in order to hear and the amazing line about how every day is now and now is the time to do everything we can. And that's funny in its own right, but it doesn't have the virtue of honesty, which Biden does. Because well, the one thing I cannot, cannot at this point fathom are the people who repeatedly and, and uh, ritualistically just hold up all these pieces of evidence of the Democratic Party's failure to exert any kind of uh, uh, governing ability, any kind of able to coordinate action and actually do politics and have no alternative other than yell at them and then what, vote for them, but vote for different 
people in, in the, on the ballot line. And hopefully, eventually, it just loses its ability to self-delude. Uh, but of course, what's going to make it do that is, is deteriorating material conditions. So we'll see. We'll certainly see. End of mass politics. You got that right. I mean, mass politics has been going on for a while, but it's fully deserted the, uh, the, the ballroom. There's no more mass in our electoral politics. World is a fuck, indeed. But, as I said, uh, amongst the broken, strewn detritus and rubble and, and the cracked pavements, there's, uh, there are green shoots rising. We are all called to be there. To water them. All right. Talk next week about first two chapters of The Dawn of Everything by David Grabgrow. David Grabgrow. <laughs>